0: A self-described brain for hire, Ben Sorensen is a media host, presenter, writer and marketing whiz. Ben also sits on the autism spectrum and he has learned to hack his brain to find ways to help make sense of the world. From an early age growing up in country Queensland, he recognised that the way he processed the world was very different to people around him and that his brain worked faster and at a more meta level than neurotypical people leaving him feeling sometimes socially isolated and perplexed about how humans work. But last year, at the age of 36, Ben sought out a formal diagnosis of ASD and has continued to kick goals, hone his gift and fully utilise his asset, his remarkable brain and
1: capacity for human kindness. In this episode, we sit down with Ben to explore his lived experience of autism, the inner workings of a mind trying to decipher the complexity of human emotions and relational nuance, and some of the challenges that Ben has faced in better understanding how to do human well. But beyond his diagnosis, we also learn about Ben's personal philosophy and values, including the importance of being consciously kind, the need for all of us to move from mere tolerance to true acceptance, and his continuing quest for greater equality in the world. Ben says he wouldn't trade his ASD for quids. Here's our conversation with Ben. So Ben, you describe yourself as an Aspie. Tell us about who you were as a child and sort of at which point did you realise you had a certain way of seeing and experiencing the world?
2: That's a really great question to kick it off. So I've always known that I've been different to everyone else that's one of the the was one of the most uh, challenging things throughout my life was knowing that I processed things differently how I interacted with kids like I never really had a huge amount of uh, friends and I never really had close friends in the traditional sense of the term certain things were very challenging for me and um, my I still don't think that my Uh, My parents understood what that was at the time. Even today, I think they still struggle with the concept. But it's like Albert Einstein, great example. Uh, He said, great people know their greatness uh, well before anyone else. And I think it's the same with uh, a lot of people on the autism spectrum with ASD or ASPYs. They know who they are and what they are and how they work well before anyone else does.
1: How could you know that? Because we can't get behind someone else's eyes, inside their mind. How did you know that you were processing things differently or, or taking the world in differently to your peers?
2: I knew I was processing things differently because in when you're in a, a group of kids, that's almost like a wonderful test group there. You'll find that um, you're able to easily compare yourself to others within those groups. So I was processing... Uh, like building things and understanding like meta questions, and you know, working out, a particularly numbers based things, a lot faster than my peers. However, I didn't really understand why they responded to me the way they did. I had trouble reading faces and recognizing faces. You know, that was probably the the first time in my life where I had to consciously and internally work out, okay, well, what are some hacks? What, How can I learn from the world around me? Because it's not working the same as what everyone's telling me it is.
0: I'm just wondering what kind of age this is.
2: Oh, we're talking like, uh, how old are you when you go to like uh, kinder or preschool or that side?
0: Uh, four or five,
2: six? Four or five,
0: Yeah. Yeah, preschool, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so very young, very young. You had this sense that... The way you were processing some things, you're ahead of the game, but other things made little sense to you.
2: Yeah, very much. And particularly social challenges. Uh, from what my mothers told me. I learned to speak a little bit late, but when I did, I totally made up for it with lots of really big words and great vocabulary. And, and,
0: and you haven't stopped since.
2: No, well, it's about it was about trying to find better ways to communicate with people that were neurologically different to me. Now, obviously, I didn't know that at the time, but my fascination with language and people and communication came from an inability to do so. So that, as a coping mechanism, became my special area of interest because, you know, if you have, you know, there's many, many disabilities out there um, that are very visual Uh, So people can sort of work around them or understand that or you can still connect with people if you're in a wheelchair or, you know, anything like that. But when your disability is socialising with other people and humans are very gregarious to start with, there's no hack. There's no way around that other than churning through people to find ones that stick around or understand or are patient enough or kind enough or you know, get what's happening or want something from you or, you know, there's an, an another reason there. So I had to learn pretty quick how can I hack the system that works for my brain so that I can understand and interact with the world otherwise I'm mm. sunk.
1: And part of that then bringing, you know, that sort of looking for patterns and cues on people's faces and the learnings you would have done to synthesise that information coming in. So they're the inputs. What about for you at that time, the role of feelings and emotions, was there an emotionality to you as a human as well? Or were you trying to learn about those
2: things from the people around you? You know, that's, that's a really great question. Cause there's, I feel like there was two levels of for me. So one level was internally, how do I feel? What are my, what's happening for me and how do I, how do I self-assess and how do I self-identify what's happening within me And then also, how do I look outside of me to the world around me and how do I interpret that and understand what those people are feeling? So um, they were two distinct journeys. So I would feel uh, my range of feelings would be very different and I would have, and I still do to a certain extent, have trouble articulating uh, different shades of feeling. Uh, So my ability to self-assess, for example... Uh, like if someone says, Oh, you know, do you um, do you do you like that? And I'll go, Well, it's not I don't feel an extreme love or hate for it, so I, I don't I don't really understand what you're asking, you know. I don't over enthusiastically love it and I don't hate it, so it's fine. So I feel like I go from I hate it, it's fine, I love it.
1: Not much grey.
2: There's not a huge amount of grey, and I also logically don't always see much point in differentiating and using additional energy to differentiate between the levels of gray. Do you want chicken or beef? I don't care. I'm going to eat. You know what I mean? Whereas I understood that other people can feel, you know, happy but sad at the same time, or they can be frustrated and angry, or they can be, you know, frustrated and tired, or they can be any number of things. And thankfully, lovely people on the internet have printed out ASD cards with a, the entire gauntlet of human emotion and some tips, tricks and cues on how to identify and what it means. There's a lot of those cards that we can now use to memorise and help understand the world around us. And they're really, really handy. And those, that's, those sort of tips and tricks are really, really helpful.
0: Do you relate to a diagnosis or have you had a diagnosis formally
2: so with autism, one of the things is if you've met one Aspie, you've met one Aspie. Correct. Um, it's definitely I love a, that.
0: Song.
2: Yeah. Uh, it's definitely a spectrum. So um, everyone's a little bit different. And uh, most of what I talk about is my experience of my journey through my part of the spectrum. But for me, the process of getting a formal diagnosis I, I found, particularly in Australia, was a little bit challenging at the time. Because in order to get a diagnosis, it required a lot of social skills and executive function that if I had that, I wouldn't need the diagnosis. Mm. I would have to go and see multiple specialists or multiple experts, each providing a story of their account with me, plus formalised testing, which is the formalised testing stuff's fine, but I'd have to coordinate all of that I'd have to put it all together. I'd have to fill out all the forms. Then I'd have to submit the forms, do the follow up and all of that to prove that I have a a, a lack of, of executive function, <laughs> which is one of the, one of the condition or one of the um, issues with uh, yeah. autism is sometimes a lack of executive function. So I found that really, really challenging. So at, now it's taken a long time, but I've Uh, I've gone through that process and got myself the formal diagnosis, got all of that together.
1: How how old were you, Ben, when you got the diagnosis?
2: Uh, The formal diagnosis was as in on paper with uh, multiple specialists doing everything that they need to do to tick all of the boxes. Um, I only got that finished like a year ago. Wow. uh, Wow. But before that, I've had uh, psychologists and psychiatrists that have gone, yes, we have confirmed that, yes, it's in your notes, but if you want to go down the formal diagnosis road, it's going to cost you like thousands of dollars and, you know, all this other stuff. And it was really hard because in Australia, we have a lot of funding for autistic uh, or kids on the autism spectrum disorder that are... Younger, so it's all focused at kids. Yes, and there is there's a service gap, as you'd know, Sabina. There's a service gap when you hit eighteen, and you've run out of government funding, or care, or you know resources to help you. And they just go, "All right, thanks. You're eighteen. See you later. Good luck."
0: Mm. Mm. What would what would it have been like for you if your parents had helped navigate this journey when you were in your high school or even primary school years?
2: So I, I, I think that it, they did the best they could at the time um, with the information that was available. And um, there certainly wasn't, it wasn't like I came from a, a home that was unloving or anything like that. I had a really, really great parents and, you know, I grew up in country Queensland. It was wonderful. But, you know, I think that the support services that were available then compared to what's available now were vastly different. Um, Mm. I think that I would have probably received a more uh, detailed assessment then, as opposed to being like intellectually gifted. They probably would have looked a little bit further and gone, okay, well, you know, really good in these areas, not so good in these areas. What does that mean? How can we assist? Mm. Whether it had a formal name or not, I feel like the education system, and uh, everything now is probably a little more aware of a wider range of, of learning challenges and social challenges to what it was 20 years ago.
1: And you, and you would have had a, a playbook for your life or for yourself that might have helped you and other people around you um, support yeah. you in, in your journey. Ben, I'm interested in, given it's so recent, your diagnosis and the pathway to getting that finally, how has getting that diagnosis and that label sort of changed your relationship with yourself and your identity.
2: Um, I think I've always know, uh, like I've always known that I've been a little bit different. I've always known that, um, you know, and and researched a lot myself on, you know, autism and how, and particularly my experience of it and how to kind of hack my brain. The formal diagnosis for me was more about understanding as I've as I'm getting older, my autism may change the things that happen for me may alter based on energy levels as you get older. And I think it's way easier to get that diagnosis for either future reference or for current assistance and to have that there just in case well before it's crisis time because it is such a challenge to and a long process to get that. I would hate to try and get that if I was in a crisis position or I really needed that help, which I hope never happens.
0: Mm.
2: So for me, that was my insurance policy. And, you know, we're still going through the process of going, well, you know, are there some little things that I need that can help me function better? Is there something that, you know, may help me uh, integrate with, you know, normal society a little bit easier and take less energy for me to do? So yes. they're the they're the questions that I'm asking, the things that I'm looking at. You know, I'm 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 certainly uh, better functioning than a lot of people, but you know, there's in everyone's life there's still uh, some some things that would make it easier. You know, that's kind of what we're looking at at the moment.
0: And relationships with other humans are such a fundamental building block of life, whether in our personal relationships or in the workplace or in community or in our neighbourhood. How do you mm. think your experiences of being on the spectrum has impacted your, your relationships both personally and professionally?
2: I think personally, it's been very slow and very challenging. I'm very fortunate whether my close interpersonal relationships have ended well or poorly. Uh, I've been very lucky to have some amazing, strong women in my life that each and every one of them have. Taught me so much about myself and relationships, and each and every one of them in their own way has been very, very kind and patient. And if we look outside of that to the work situation, I mean, there's I kind of have a framework that I've built for sort of arm's length work relationships, which I love. Work relationships are the best because they're easily definable. You know what's appropriate, you know what's not, you know what's expected and what isn't. It's goal orientated. Like there's a lot of really great parameters that you can sort of plug into. Whereas if you look at uh, like friendships or romantic relationships or, or anything like that, it's a lot more gray and fuzzy and more flowing and, you know, th- there's not so many
1: it's not so many rules, I suppose, like because there's a, there's nuance yeah. and the emotional side of it. Whereas work is more transactional, almost.
2: Totally, and I love I love that. That's great.
1: I'm going to um, challenge that.
0: Actually, I, I I'm not. I mean, that's yeah. That it, it depends. I mean, perhaps you could tell us how you describe the work, the line of work that you're in, Ben, and that might help. It depends
1: on the work you do, of course, because like. Yeah, you work yeah. clinically. It's very emotional. Well, Whereas I... where you look at big teams or big organisational structure, I get what you're saying, Ben. Like there is sort of a yeah. a scaffold that sits in there and you can understand then the, the nature of the relationships between people working together in those sort of functions, if you like.
2: Absolutely. But I understand what you're saying, Sabina, as well. Now, in a personal relationship or friendship, you are you are correct. There are lots of rules and lots of uh, different social nuances and cultural things that we need to take into account. But the difference is in the work situation, that's all pretty open and obvious, but in the personal situation, there are unwritten laws that you need, you're expected to know or intuitively understand when you're playing that in that realm. Whereas Mm -hmm. in work, they'll go, no, that's not appropriate. You can't drink at work. Oh, okay, cool. I don't drink at work now. Easy, except during COVID.
0: You know, I think um, except
2: during COVID. Yeah, teaching supplies now. Yes.
0: Okay. So drinking at work—that's an obvious one. But I guess what I'm what I'm reflecting on is all of the nuances that take place in a workplace. There's not a manual for everything, even in a corporate setting. Or yes, it's no drinking on the job, but there's so many areas to be confused or. Uh, in, open to interpretation between relationships in the workplace, even when there's so-called structure at play.
2: Absolutely, and that's the difference between surviving in a workplace and thriving in a workplace. So we're talking about, uh, and and I absolutely understand. So if you go to a big corporate, um, there is a lot of time that is spent schmoozing and networking and working out who does what and how you can move forward as far as career goes. So. I don't see myself as being particularly good at that long term. Functional work stuff, going, hey, I need X, Y, Z, you have X, Y, Z. We can work together on it and be kind and polite. Amazing. But outside of that, you're you're right, Sabina, that side of it is very challenging for me and takes a lot of energy. And I'm, I'm okay at navigating that, but it's a lot of work.
1: So what happens, Ben, in it, like if you're in a dysfunctional team, let's say, or a really challenging work situation where the human dynamic does come to play, of course. Which is Absolutely. every team. <laughs> yeah, which is every team. But, but you know, some teams are more functional than others yes. and some workplaces are, right? But you can get some toxic cultures or some some sort of cocktails of alchemy that occur when different humans get together. And yep. so how do you navigate that? Like, do you expect people to make allowance for you or treat you differently because of your way of Coming at the world, or, or ha- what happens for you when you have to then navigate those challenges where it's less easy to read the behaviour around you?
2: Normally, I'm result- I try to be results driven. Uh, I try very hard not to use autism as uh, an excuse for anything. I tend to refer to it as a as a as a gift, as opposed to a a challenge in a work situation or a, or a, a something to be wary of in a work situation. If I do make a mistake or an error that I feel could be due to misreading something, I just call it as it is. Uh, look, I'm really sorry that we had that that experience. I probably missed a few things because I'm autistic and I mask really, really well. Uh, I'm really happy for you to explain to me what happened for you so that I can learn from that and, and be better next time.
0: Oh, but Ben, I mean, that is just communication gold what you've just said then not just for people on the spectrum The way that you just expressed that, and you've obviously been able to use that many, many times in personal and professional settings, is what all of us are seeking, I think, in our interpersonal exchanges with other humans is, did you understand me? And if you didn't understand me, you know, how can we work through that? And can we acknowledge that? And you just said that so beautifully. So I, I just invite our listeners, whether you're on the spectrum or not, or whether you're in a relationship or working with someone on the spectrum or not, to reflect on, um, the sentiment that you just shared and how powerful I think that is for all of us.
2: And I, th- I think the one thing that the, the, the one gift that I think my ASD has given me is in social situations. I assume if something goes wrong, I've, I've missed something. It's not someone else being horrible. Hmm. I assume that I, I've, I've missed something or I've done something wrong or I haven't picked up on a cue or something. So I'm, uh, normally pretty pretty quick at, at going oh okay something's not right here apologies if it's me but can you just go back and explain to me what's happened
0: but imagine if the whole world, imagine if we all looked at um, conflict or misunderstandings through that lens of I don't think you are attacking me. I, you know, if we didn't personalise, if we we're able to just say as yeah. kind of a matter of course and a matter of fact, which is the way you're saying it, oh, sorry, I might have missed something there. Um, help me understand what's what, what you meant. Mm. Or,
1: well, being I, more explicit and overt rather than having hidden currents in our relationships, like yeah. actually bringing it up into the light. Yeah.
2: Look, sometimes that works really well. Other times some people think that that's poking the bear because I can't always read uh, what level of angry, distress or upset the other person is. So uh, they might be frothing at the mouth and I'm going, okay, well, I think I may have missed something here. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. maybe, maybe we could have, have a tea and talk about it.
1: So is it, that, is it sort of a feedback loop thing there where yeah. you're not... Okay, so you're sort of not taking in the information to adjust, yeah?
2: Yeah, well, a lot of this varies whether I'm super tired or really, you know, uh, on fire, having a really good day. So I find that uh, a lot of my faculties, when I'm tired, are less engaged than when I'm I'm not tired and I'm doing okay. So, uh, like, there's a uh, some of the language stuff. Uh, I'll lose, I'll lose words occasionally and mm. I won't be able to e- e- express and I'll have auditory delays. So you know when you someone says something to you and you say, oh, sorry, pardon or, or you know what was that?" And then they start again and then you go, "Oh, I've, I've caught up now, it's all good." So stuff like that happens a fair bit when I'm tired. And also the examples that I've given you previous, Uh, previously in this that's like perfect world I mean one of the things that I do understand is that that's what I'm striving for is perfect world that's the framework and there's always a lot of things that go wrong with that and I find that uh, just like kindness it's a constant choice and process Hmm. so it's it's about going okay well this is I think that these are my values and I think this is the best version of me and I will strive to meet that as often as I possibly can. Knowing that there is some, I can think of plenty of situations where I've fallen short and I've done things very differently for a multitude of different reasons. And that's part of the growth and evolution. And my goal is to try and do that, do the, be the best version of me as often as I can. And when I'm not able to to try and have a framework for that so that I can at least be uh, polite, kind, accurate, mm, you know, a whole, yeah. ra- a whole range of other things and work on, well, why did that not go well? So I, have a, yeah. a, I try to do a self-assessment at the end of every negative situation so that I can go, what can I learn from this?
0: But again, just, uh, yeah, and I hear what you're saying, that you, this is, you know, best case scenario that you were giving us and that it's it's sometimes flawed and doesn't go to plan. But even that, being able to reflect and that level of insight is very powerful in self-growth and connecting with other humans as well.
2: only took me 35 years.
0: Yeah, and it's a work in progress for every <laughs> single one of us. I think for me, you know, my passion really around having the conversations we're having on Human Cogs is, as I've said before, to normalise our experiences. And it's such a powerful thing to look for the commonality between humans instead of the differences. And Mm. I I know I do that all the time. And as I'm listening to you speak, I'm looking at what what you and I have in common. I'm not on the spectrum. You're on the spectrum. But so much of what you're saying resonates really deeply with me. And I think that's an invitation to all of us that... Mm. It would help connect and not divide us as a species, and and I love the way that you're expressing that.
2: No, I was going to say Adam Hills has got a really great line that sort of speaks to that point as well. Um, he says, "Don't be a dick."
0: <laughs> That's exactly what I was just trying to say, <laughs> but I think Adam says it better than I do. <laughs> it's
1: pretty. It's pretty economical. And it's, yeah, Don't it's waste your words, good. Adam.
0: Um, you're talking about how tiring it can be and, and your awareness of running out of puff when you don't, when your tank's not full. What kind of self-care strategies do you put in place knowing that you might have big working days or a lot of connection with other people or a lot of time just in the presence of others? What do you do to to create um, a sense of boundary and well-being around that?
2: So that's uh, that's really interesting. That's one of the challenges that I have at the moment. So I have a lot of, Long-term strategies, I did, you know, Breakfast Radio on the Sunshine Coast for a couple of years. I did some, uh, worked with a publishing company with a stable of magazines, doing some, some work there. And I've done Kids TV with Nine and a heap of other stuff like that for other organisations. And I think that the nine to five, 40-hour-a-week thing doesn't match how I naturally am It doesn't afford me the ability to go, okay, well, I'm, as an adult, I'm managing my own time and my own deadlines and going, okay, well, I need to sleep in this morning because I'm drained and I've, I've had some, I've had a rough night or I've had a rough day or whatever. Working for someone else where work expands to fill billable hours doesn't afford me that level of flexibility for, long-term energetic success
1: and manage, managing yourself within that context
2: i'm capable of self-managing i'm sure mads and you know, def- definitely you sabina would, would would understand the the flexibility that self-managing brings if you've got kids uh, a partner traveling family away from home uh, different types of work particularly as a freelancer Uh, in the media space or in the consulting space, that also really helped me to manage my own energy levels and manage the challenges that I had day to day so that I could actually mask better and look like a neurologically typical person for the, you know, eight hours that I was out in the bustling world.
1: Mm, And and I think, yeah, we're moving in workplaces toward neurodiversity to really building structure and, um, and policy and, and culture in organisations to really embed neurodiversity at that team level so that we, we, we can make those allowances finally.
2: Yeah, and also I love the concept of uh, we're making allowances in a workplace. I think we need to change our title workplace model because if we look at that, and, I mean, COVID's really taught us that we can do this. It's about employing adults that are good at their jobs and just letting them be good at their jobs and get on with it.
1: Correct, and and it's been a catalyst of flexibility, accountability, more uh, outcome-based work rather than bum in seat kind of models where uh, you know there just wasn't that implicit implicit trust between the organisation and the employee. And COVID has, as you say, it's kind of busted the the egg on that and forced us all to work, look at how we work and why we work and can work look fundamentally different to what it looked like in the world before COVID.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I hope we retain some of those learnings there because it's not only a, makes financial sense but for a lot of businesses, but it also makes uh, productivity sense as well. And, and uh, there's also a lot of benefits for uh, the mental health of workers to have that sort of lower stress, greater flexibility there. Um, Just going back to um, some takeaways from this, it's also, I think, really important to um, talk about expectations as well. When you walk out into the world, there is an expectation that you are to be neurologically typical or present as neurologically typical as, as you can, whatever that means for you. Once you relax from that and go, I don't expect myself to act neurologically typical all the time, I am me and I just need to relax that self-expectation and not read into society's expectation just proudly and confidently and kindly be myself, whatever that is, then I think we actually do reach a really wonderful middle point where you're not trying to mimic or overcompensate And neither is anyone else because you're being authentically you. And I think being authentically you is a really wonderful way to be, whether you're on the spectrum or not.
0: Oh, I have just loved this chat, Ben. And we finish all of our human cogs conversations with the same question. And that is to ask all our guests, who do you think is doing human well?
2: I love this question so much. Um, Now... When we look at, or in, in my mind, who does human well is more of a concept and an idea than a person. And some people embody that idea better. I absolutely adore um, Anthony Bourdain. I think that particularly toward the end of his life, he was very comfortable with who he was and very open about his past and his stories And how he interacts with people and calling a spade a spade. And I really loved that. Uh, I think Robin Williams, with the joy that he brought people, was absolutely amazing. in His unique way of thinking of the world. He had a very dark side with the depression and everything there. But he was a huge personality with a wonderful mind. And I think that celebrating the mind is such a wonderful thing. Also, oddly... Mr Rogers from the uh the US kids show that ran for years and years and years Fred Rogers he died in 2003 but he was known as Mr Rogers the American t- uh, TV personality musician puppeteer he did heaps of stuff and uh Tom Hanks recently played him in the in a a movie about his life a uh, um, beautiful day in the neighborhood I think it was called reading about Mr Rogers story and learning about that That was one of the moments for me where I went, okay, so he was one of the kindest people that I have seen in such a long time. But that kindness was a choice. It wasn't necessarily natural in every moment, but it was a conscious choice to be kind. For me, that's one of the goals that I have in my world is to try to be consciously kind.
0: Oh, Ben. Ben. You've just answered that question in in probably a different way than a lot of our other guests. And what you're talking about is the kinds of qualities that you respect and admire in others. And obviously that you're choosing to live by yourself. That is one of kindness and celebrating the mind and living with joy and being authentically yourself. So... Thank you so much for joining us on Human Cogs. What a what a ride! And we could talk to you for so much longer. I know that people will hear this conversation and have a new way of thinking about um, humans on the spectrum.
1: Thanks, Ben. It was, you're a great teacher, and you've hacked your brain beautifully (laughs) because um as you just described such incredible insights into being a human and how we can do human better so thank you so much it's been a privilege
2: oh it's also been a privilege for me thank you so much uh sabina and mads for being such engaged intelligent powerful women going out into the world and sharing that Uh, that magic that is you and I just absolutely adore the series and it's just so wonderful to spend time with you. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit.
0: And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com.